This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is part four of our Why Church series. So if you were last week, Scott preached and he announced at the beginning he was really proud of himself that he knew in advance far enough uh, what he was preaching on that he could put notes in the bulletin uh, printed. And I just want to say, great job, Scott. Way to go, buddy. If you've got a pen or a pencil and you're a note taker and sermon titles matter to you, you can cross out the one that's there on your page and you can write, living for the glory of God. Jesus lived fully for the glory of God. His whole mission was to glorify his Father. And his only reward was to receive glory from his Father. And because Jesus lived that way, living for the glory of God and scorning the shame that came from the world, because he lived that way, in the end, Jesus was exalted higher than any other name and given the uttermost glory at the right hand of the Father. This is what we celebrate today in the Feast of the Ascension. Our lives are to follow that pattern. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, we will, little by little, become more like Jesus, seeking to glorify God first and foremost. And then when we do seek glory, it will be the glory that comes from God, not from the world. That's all that we'll care about. God, what do you say about me? Desiring neither the praise of the world nor fearing its shame. The Gospel of John, the word glory is a really important concept. And even if you turn in, in your bulletin to John 17, if you just glance over those first five verses of Jesus' prayer, you see either the words glory or glorify come up very frequently. So what is glory? In a word, glory is greatness. Greatness. Human beings are drawn to glory, whether it's a glorious sunset or watching the sports highlight real great moments in sports or the majestic symphony that you love or the poems that you uh, resonate with. Or it might be that person in whom you perceive is an element of greatness and so you want to be near them. We're drawn to glory and oftentimes you know that something is glorious because you find yourself being drawn to it. But we not only want to watch the highlight reel over and over, we also want to go out into the yard and practice throwing that baseball 100 times in a day, imagining that maybe one day I too might throw a no-hitter. Or we, we learn the poetry that we love, but then pretty soon we start writing our own and dreaming for the day that we might become one of the greats. We not only want to be near those in whom we see an element of greatness, but we hope that eventually others would see that in us. We want to become great. We desire glory. God knows that we are drawn to greatness. And contrary to what you might think, rather than get rid of that desire altogether, he actually wants to use that longing to lead us to himself. I believe he created us with a built-in desire for glory. But there is a major temptation here. The desire for glory, the desire for greatness can easily become corrupted and disordered. 
One disorder that's really common that we're all prone to is we want to become the sole recipients of glory. We want recognition, we want honor, and we want the glory to be all our own, none for others, not even too worried about whether God gets any glory or not. So that's one disorder. Another disorder and related to it, uh, we get confused about which glory to seek. The glory that comes from other people or the glory that comes from God alone. Glory that comes from people is nice because it's immediate. Glory that comes from God usually takes a while to get. Oftentimes you have to die first. We prefer the glory that comes from others as opposed to the glory that comes from God like we prefer getting calories from a Snickers bar as opposed to homemade chicken noodle soup. But the result of living with a disordered desire for glory is that we spend so much of our lives searching and scraping for recognition, honor, for a place. Do I have a place? Will I ever find my place? Why does so-and-so get the promotion? Why does he or she get to do certain things? Be up front, lead, be a part of that meeting. Am I always going to be passed over? And if we do find any scrap of recognition or honor or a place, then we're constantly in fear of losing it. What if someone takes my place? What if someone comes along who's more ambitious or more highly gifted than me? If you're in middle or high school, often this revolves around popularity. But whether you're in middle school or middle age, we all know the same thing. This game is no fun to play. It's an agonizing way to live. But what if we don't have to live that way? What if there was something we could do to escape the craving for greatness, recognition, and fame? Well, there is. We can learn from Jesus how to have a rightly ordered desire for glory. As I said, it's right to have a certain desire for glory, but how do we eliminate that, that craving, that almost lust for honor, recognition, and greatness? Well, we do it two ways. First, we live our lives seeking glory for God first and not ourselves primarily. This is what Jesus did. If you look in verse 1, he does ask the Father to glorify him. But why? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even when Jesus is asking to be glorified, he's asking for glory so that he can pass it back to the Father. That's his ultimate goal. It's his whole mission. Look at, again at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That was what I was all about, my Father's glory. So we need to do the same thing. Live our lives seeking first the glory of God and not our own glory. The second thing we need to do is when we do seek glory, we must seek the glory that comes from God and not from others. In this prayer in John 17, who is Jesus talking to? Who is he asking glory from? He's asking it from the Father and no one else because he knows, he recognizes that no other glory is worth having compared to the glory that God alone can give. So this morning, let the Lord search your heart. Where might you have a disordered desire for glory that this morning he wants to realign? In order to have a rightly ordered desire for glory, 
we'll talk about those two main ideas that I just mentioned. First, living to give God the glory, and then second, living for the glory that God alone gives. So living to give God the glory, and then living for the glory that God alone gives. So first, we must live to give God the glory. As I said, this was Jesus' whole purpose and mission. Back in verse 1, why did he ask for glory? That the Son may glorify you, Father. And that is consistent with earlier episodes in the Gospel of John where he's confronted by the Jewish leaders. If we go back to chapter 7, he tells the leaders, Look, my teaching is not my own, but it is from God who sent me. Anyone who speaks on his own authority is seeking his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. In other words, Jesus is saying, these are not my words that I'm teaching you with. This is not my authority that I'm teaching in. Everything I do is from God, and everything I do is for God. His glory, not my own. In chapter 8, Jesus tells them even more plainly, I do not seek my own glory. Wow. Jesus, who had the right, of anybody, he had the right to seek glory for himself. And he says, I do not seek a glory above the glory that I want to bring to my Father. I do not seek it. And then in chapter 12, immediately after Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he prays to his Father. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Jesus lived to please his Father in heaven. Uh, most of us, including yours truly, at times and in certain ways, secretly think, believe, that God exists to please us and not the other way around. We don't as often stop to think, how am I or how could I be bringing glory or giving glory to God right now in this moment, today? But we do hope that God will help us with our goals, ultimately achieving our own glory in the world. Now, many of us here work in some kind of Christian ministry, either a nonprofit or teachers at a Christian school um, or Christian publishing. And even in service to God, we can still be seeking our own glory. When I was in high school, someone in my church told me that I would do great things for God someday. Initially, I was really encouraged. I started reading my Bible more and wondering how I could be about the work of the Lord. But eventually, that went to my head. And I kind of latched on to the great things part of that statement and sort of forgot about the for God part of that statement. And that took many years to sort out, and in many ways I still am sorting that out. As I realized that it's possible, even in serving God, to really be serving my own needs, my own glory. So how do we begin to live for the glory of God and not for ourselves? Well, I think we can take a lesson from Jesus here in John 17. We can look at the way he prays, and we can begin to live for the glory of God, starting with how we pray. I don't know about you, but in my own prayers, when I pray, it's, it's not often with the primary purpose of seeking God's glory. There's usually something that I want or something that I need or some crisis that brings me to prayer. Now, to be sure, 
God wants us to ask for the things that we need when we pray. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, do ask for your daily bread. That is important. Absolutely. But he also teaches us in the Lord's Prayer that we begin the prayer by seeking God's glory. Hallowed be thy name, we say at the beginning, which is another way of saying what Jesus said in John chapter 12. Father, glorify your name. That comes first. So, when you pray, give glory to God right there in the very act of praying. You, you can do this by praying prayers of praise and thanksgiving. We glorify God through this kind of prayer because we are quite literally in that moment giving Him glory. We're naming the ways that God is great. That is the substance of our prayer at that point. And that's a beautiful way to pray. Uh, of all the kinds of prayer that we can pray, there won't be petition in heaven. I uh, sure hope there won't be confession in heaven. No, there won't be confession. But there will be praise and there will be thanksgiving. So when we pray prayers of praise and thanksgiving now on this earth, we're praying the kind of prayers that we will be praying forever. They're beautiful prayers. An example of one might be, God, you're faithful and merciful. You are good and all you do is good and you've been good to me. I give thanks to you and I glorify your name. That's always a good way to start your time in prayer, a few minutes of praise and thanksgiving. Then, when you move to, to asking for things, when you do get to that part of prayer, and again, that is a valid and important part of prayer, among the things that you ask for, ask that God would be glorified in your life this day. It could sound like this. God, I open myself to you today. Help me to do what you want me to do and to bring glory to you in all that I do. Or as a start, we can simply just begin by praying every day, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name in me today. Personally, that's going to be my goal this week. I'm going to make it a goal to start each day in prayer that seeks the glory of God. That'll be a new way for me to pray, to do that every day. And I hope you join me in that. Then after we, we move out of prayer, we can go into our day to the normal tasks that we have before us, doing everything for the love of God and with a thankful heart. Anything that you do, any task that you have, you can do for the glory of God. It's how you can give God glory. And I found that the best prayer for tasks that are more menial or less pleasant to do is a simple prayer. As you're doing it, you just say, Lord, I do this for the love of you. I do this for the love of you. And then whatever you're doing, it totally flips. It changes the inner attitude with which you're doing it and brings joy where only there's only drudgery before. Lord, I do this for the love of you. There was a French monk a few centuries back named Brother Lawrence. He was the champion of this kind of prayer. He's the one who coined the phrase, doing small things for the love of God. He says this, the time of working is not distinct from the time of prayer. I possess God as much in the clatter of the kitchen as I do when I'm on my knees in worship. I turn over my little omelet in the frying pan for the love of God. And when I am finished, if I have nothing to do, I will prostrate myself on the ground and adore my God who gave me the ability to make that omelet. After that, I rise from the ground more content than a king. It is enough for me to have picked up a straw from the ground for the love of God. So the first key to rightly ordered desire for glory or desire for greatness is to live for the glory of God 
above all things, even and especially over the desire to live for our own greatness. So the second thing, we must live for the glory that God alone gives. So part of having a rightly ordered desire for glory also means that you will live for the glory that only God can give you and not worry too much about whether you receive glory or notice or recognition from the people around you or the world at large. There was a recent study by a social entertainment network called Clap It, and it found that millennials, more than any previous generation, really, really, really want to be famous. For many, this tops even their desire to be rich. So here's some of the findings from this study. About a third of millennials revealed that they would rather be famous than become a lawyer, and a quarter would rather be famous than a doctor. One in nine millennials would rather be famous than get married, and one in six would forego having children for the possibility of fame. In my view, it all started with American Idol, which in turn was all started by America's Funniest Home Videos, which I love that show. But. Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders precisely on this point. Back in John chapter 5, he chastises the leaders for not believing in him. And in words similar to what was read earlier, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will gladly receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Basically, he's saying, when someone else comes seeking their own glory, you gladly will help their YouTube video go viral, but because I come seeking my Father's glory and I don't care about your approval, you dismiss me. The Jewish leaders had the same problem that we have. We seek approval and glory from others. We do our deeds in order to be seen by others, hoping that someone will take notice, rather than seeking glory from God alone and just resting in the knowledge that He sees everything that is done. So what do we need? We need to be okay with being a nobody in the eyes of the world, to become small. The Apostle Peter, when he was writing his letter to the Christians, in chapter 5 he said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Read, to the small. And he goes on to say, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. But then listen to this part. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let's not lose sight of the fact that what God has said from the very beginning is, no, I want you to desire glory because I desire glory for you. I actually desire to lift you up and to exalt you. But first, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this is exactly what Jesus did. One of the things I love about Jesus is he, he almost never asks us to do anything that he himself has not already done or at least wouldn't be willing to do. He became small first, and then he was exalted to the right hand of God. If you go back to chapter 17 and verse 5, he's praying and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why does Jesus need to ask for the glory that he had before the world existed? For the simple reason 
that he had that glory in the beginning, but then he gave it up to become human. Now, true, he, he never gave up being God. He remained God even as he became human, but what he gave up was the glory of being God. He did that to become human in order to save us. He became small for us. I mean, truly, think about it. The God who fills the heavens and the earth with his glory became so small that at one point he was invisible to the naked eye. When Jesus, the fertilized egg, was implanting in the uterine wall of the Virgin Mary, which, yes, he did that. He's human just like you and me. At that point, God was invisible to the naked eye. Jesus gave up the glory of God and he became small so that small sinners like you and like me could share in the glory of God. That same glory that he has now at the right hand of the Father, that's where he is bringing us. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus wants us too to become small in the eyes of the world. And whenever you're afraid of smallness, of being hidden, unseen, unknown, unrecognized, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father in heaven who sees everything. He sees the small things that you do for the love of God that nobody else sees. He sees them, he's taking note, and he will reward you. But this takes faith to believe that Jesus really meant that when he said that. And that the Father is really watching everything we do. He takes note. And if we do any small thing for the love of God, he is making a note. And he's waiting to give you the reward on the last day. But it takes faith because the glory and the reward that is waiting for you, you can't see it right now. And it's painful to feel overlooked or hidden or unimportant. It takes faith to believe that the reward is there, that God will keep his promise, and that in the end, in the end, it will be worth it. But I tell you today, the reward is there. God will keep his promise, and it will be worth it in the end. So in what ways is God asking you to become small and wait for the glory that he alone can give? And how do we practice living for the glory that God alone can give. Well, there are many ways, but here are a few to get us started. First, and maybe the most important thing that I would say, seek contentment. Are you a content person? Routinely identify the roots of discontent and take them to the Holy Spirit and say, why is this here, and what do I do about it? Becoming a person of contentment does not happen automatically. It takes that routine soul scan to say, okay, I think there's some discontentment in here. Why is that there? Where does that come from? Can I identify the source? When I do, can I take it to the Holy Spirit and say, what do I do to get rid of this? He will help us grow into contentment. Seek contentment. Also, be thankful to God in your prayers. And be thankful to others in your words, because if you and I start to live a thankful life, we will begin to see all the ways that God is already showering his glory upon us. 
seek to honor others, and point out their greatness precisely at the moment that you were wishing somebody would notice your own. That's a great little kind of signal or, or clue. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling overlooked and unrecognized. And, well, maybe other people are feeling that way too. Oh, well, maybe, maybe I will give away the very thing that I desire for myself. That sounds a lot like Jesus. And notice when envy creeps in and guard against it. Guard against envy with everything that you've got. We do this by confessing the sin of envy or jealousy and then praying for the person that you're jealous of. I've found no other way to make headway against the sin of jealousy in my own life. Guard against it with everything you've got. And above all, remember what Jesus said. Your Father in heaven who sees everything will reward you. Believe in that and hope in that. A few years back, I was in a, a place where I was asking a lot of these questions and kind of wondering, where is my place? Will I have a place? Am I being overlooked? All those kinds of questions. And I sat down with a, an older pastor who's wise, and he offered me something that stuck with me, and I want to give it to you. Hopefully it'll help you as well. He said, a carpenter has a toolbox. And one of the things that a carpenter hates more than anything is to have the wrong tool for a particular job. You don't want to use a hammer when what you really need is a screwdriver, and you don't want to use a screwdriver when what you really need is to nail something into the wall. Each of us is a tool in the toolbox. God knows exactly the job that he's made us for, what he's asked us to do. And it does us no good wanting to be a screwdriver when, when really I'm a hammer, or wanting to be a tape measure when, when really... I'm supposed to be a screwdriver. And trust that your carpenter, your master carpenter, knows all the tools in his toolbox, your tool in his hand, and rest in the knowledge that he has made you for a purpose and he knows exactly what job he needs you for. That's a great way to begin on the road towards contentment. As John the Baptist said, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. And in the end, what will be given to you from heaven And to all who believe in Jesus and seek the glory of God, to each and every one will be given back to you the glory of God, himself filling you with all of his fullness. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.